Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Thinks, the Bismarck Special Part 2. Last time we introduced you guys to some important defining theories and issues that clouded the judgement or roused the passions of statesmen in France and Prussia in 1870 on the eve of the Franco-Prussian War. This time we put these theories to more practical use. So how did these parties react when, for example, the Spanish throne was suddenly up for grabs? Well let's find out as I take the narrative a little bit back to February of 17th of February 1870, Spanish officials wrote to Prince Leopold of the House of Hohenzollern, offering him the crown of Spain. At this suggestion, Otto von Bismarck was immediately supportive. In a letter he wrote to King Wilhelm of Prussia detailing the benefits, listing both security and economic reasons, Bismarck was adamant that Prince Leopold should accept. 
With a friendly monarch on the throne of Spain, France would have to divert troops to the Pyrenees in case of war with Prussia to guard against attack across its Iberian border. But beyond this, Bismarck also knew that such a move would be a strong provocation vis-a-vis France. Napoleon III was well aware of the possible strategic implications, having stated in the past that a Hohenzollern prince on the throne of Spain will be a dagger at the heart of the French nation. Moreover, and perhaps of more importance to the troubled French regime, a further Hohenzollern success would represent another loss of French prestige, which itself was already reeling from being denied compensations following Prussia's success in the Austro-Prussian War in 1866. Should France acquiesce here to basically a Prussian throne grab, its leaders could be threatened by domestic outrage. Should it stand firm, war might result. Bismarck, as it turned out, was likely hopeful for either result. To claim that he did not foresee the possible consequences to it is, as the historian Otto Flans argued, to make the line of European diplomacy look like a house cat. A gain in Persian prestige and French instability was certainly an outcome to be appreciated. War, however, was not entirely unwelcome. War wouldn't just resemble a chance to deal a blow to French power, it would also aid in the cause of unifying Germany, for, as Bismarck would later write, I was convinced that the gulf which in the course of history had opened between north and south in our country, because of differences in ways of life and dynastic and tribal loyalties, it could not be more effectively bridged than through a common national war against the traditionally aggressive neighbour. If we accept this and the credit Bismarck was trying to make out of the Spanish throne crisis, our earlier explanations of Bismarck's motives and style make arguably still more sense. When Napoleon III discovered Bismarck's ambitions through an accidental leak in Prussian communications, he immediately saw what Bismarck expected, that the situation was in many ways lose-lose for France. The impetus would be on France to act, unless of course it could acquire satisfaction by diplomatic means. This avenue compelled the French to use their ambassador in Berlin, in his capacity as a familiar guest with Wilhelm, to wrest the diplomatic concessions they desired, one which would confirm that French power remained significant enough that it could force its rivals to back down through, well, essentially bluffs and threats alone. In many ways it was a familiar tactic, because the diplomacy of the big stick, or gunboat diplomacy, had worked many times before. Through its success, in this case, Napoleon could save his regime, and he could prove that French influence still counted for something. If Prussia refused to give satisfaction through diplomacy, though, then war could achieve it through arms, by which point Europe would see that Paris had at least tried to avoid it, but that Prussian intransigence had left it with no choice. Bismarck, of course, was able to spin such events to his own convenience. The French were restricting Prussian and German ambitions, not to mention snubbing the Spanish, by preventing the desired candidate from ascending to that throne. France was threatening Berlin and Germans themselves for this interference, while she also represented a threat to German ambitions by preventing their expansion through marriage, a key aspect of the international system, and in many respects a sacred tradition of German stately rulers. Before such threats could be emphasised, Bismarck had to work behind the scenes to get this eventuality to come to pass. According to family law, Wilhelm I, as the King of Prussia, but also head of the Hohenzollern household, had to give his permission to Leopold's Spanish scheme, as did Leopold's father, Karl Anton, and all were initially against the idea. 
the Spanish throne wasn't exactly the most secure of European institutions, and it wouldn't reflect well on Leopold, or the Hohenzollern family for that matter, if he was subsequently deposed, or, well, worse. But with sufficient prodding, all were eventually, if somewhat reluctantly, convinced to agree to the idea. By the 21st of June, the negotiations were completed for Leopold to ascend to the throne of Spain. All that remained was his approval by the Spanish representative body, the Cortés, several days later. And with this, Bismarck would have accomplished a provocative fait accompli vis-à-vis France. Suddenly, Leopold would be on the throne of Spain before Napoleon could even react, and it would thus force the French emperor to formulate a policy on the fly, which Bismarck predicted would be rash. This rash response could of course be spun to the German people as French interference and prevention on a national scale, and a manifestation of the French threat to Prussian German securities across the continent. In Paris, of course, the French people would see it as the exact same thing, but only one of these regimes was actually under any kind of threat. It was of no small help that the French foreign minister, Antoine Aguinor, Duke de Grammont, was an easy mark. And by that I mean he has been variously described as vain, hot-headed and chauvinistic, possessing an ardent patriotism readily led into recklessness, more justifiable in a soldier than a statesman, and also as being no Talleyrand. The provocation thus fell into fertile soil. In Grammont, what you had was an individual who was likely to experience personal outrage, and who was tied tightly enough to Napoleon's regime that he would transfer this anger to the emperor and the emperor's inner circle. After the news broke then, the Prussian ambassador was summoned to an audience with Grammont, who found him inconsolable with rage. Furious at what he saw as Prussian intrigues, fair enough, because that's what they were, Grammont unleashed a tirade of rhetoric in the process sending out bombastic memos to French diplomatic posts and encouraging the press to stir up nationalistic indignation. He was not alone, though. Grammont found a like-minded ally within Napoleon's regime, the French Prime Minister, Émile Olivier, a man who was also vulnerable to provocation, whom one historian described as a man who was not disposed to fight a war over the principle of power politics, but was perfectly disposed to fight a war over the graver and far more emotional issue of national pride. Alarmed and angry at the news of Leopold's candidature, he also pushed for a forceful response, and in the speech which Grammont delivered on the 6th of July to the French Chamber in Paris, Olivier would be responsible for some of its most aggressive lines. The speech struck a strident tone, warning that should Leopold not withdraw his claim to the Spanish throne, then we shall know to do our duty without faltering or weakening. This latter declaration in particular excited French domestic opinion, in the words of the historian David Wetzel, Grammont's declaration produced a great surge of outraged patriotic feeling. All lesser emotions were laid aside. It also found an echo in the indignation it aroused in German public opinion, even in the southern states where the popularity of Prussia had previously been slipping. To reinforce the point, though, Bismarck also pushed the German press to stoke the fires even further, saying, The newspapers must be as rough, and as many of them must report it as possible. The French resolve displayed strength to its people, but this was a rash policy decision, one which stoked the fires of a conflict that France was outmatched in, and it also raised the stakes significantly. If we were to apply the theories and issues that we learned earlier, then Napoleon here could have demonstrated his regime's strength and stability by not reacting, 
or by settling the dispute amicably by way of negotiations directly with King Wilhelm, who, remember, was not a huge fan of the Spanish throne idea either, or with the candidate Leopold himself. Failing that, direct pressure on the more malleable Spain would have certainly resulted in Madrid's backing down, and a further diplomatic victory could then be assured. Instead, though, the French upped the ante by almost daring Berlin to test it further, and through this they not only greatly aided Bismarck by demonstrating the French tendency to react in the heat of the moment, but the tone of the declaration ensured that France would appear the bellicose party, thus losing the support of other European powers, support that could have proved useful if conflict occurred. It is also important to point out the use Bismarck could make from the French repose in another avenue. The French stance resulted in a backlash in German media and in the popular opinion. Southern states that would originally have been difficult to mobilise over the curious case of a Spanish dynastic succession now weighed in on the side of Prussia. One French official would report back to Paris that A hatred of France was being fostered, a contagious hatred, and it would not fail sooner or later to become general and sweep over the Germans. And Bismarck, of course, was quite content to further fan the flames. Consequently, it's difficult to view Grammont's declaration as a rational masterstroke. In the words of another historian, An emotional spasm, not the dictates of cold logic, lay behind Grammont's declaration of the 6th of July. This French overreaction in the face of outright Prussian provocation through ambition, not to mention Bismarck's evident scheming, meant that Europe would bear witness to a hasty war whose guilt would lay at the feet of France and Napoleon III's regime, as Europe stood aside and Germany unified under Berlin, thus achieving the goal which Bismarck had based his ministry on since its beginning. However, events did not move so quickly in July 1870 that no opportunities existed to save the peace. We have of course barely scratched the surface on the psychological warfare and intrigues that Bismarck waged on the unfortunate Napoleon III and his France, even before war was declared on the 19th of July, 1870. There's simply so many layers to this story, guys. I feel it would take numerous episodes or even a podcast miniseries or even a full-blown podcast to actually cover properly. In such a project, I would attempt to maximise in more detail Bismarck's experiences, his career, his triumphs and his struggles, as well as the qualities that made him a statesman of incredible calibre. We are not quite finished unravelling the circumstances that led France to declare war. That eventuality is only understandable in light of what we now know about Napoleon's French regime, as we examine the final straw which broke the camel's back, the Ems Dispatch. It has to be said that the French government did actually engage in a diplomatic course of action that would be more fruitful. It ordered the French ambassador to Prussia for one, a Vincent Benedetti, to Bad Ems, where Wilhelm I was convalescing, to press the French case for satisfaction. On the 9th of July, Benedetti would have the first of several meetings with the Prussian king. Wilhelm I, on the one hand, wasn't happy with Grammont's declaration, and he now refused to rescind his approval of Leopold's acceptance of the Spanish throne, even though he didn't really want Leopold to go for it all that much. After some prodding by Benedetti, though, Wilhelm indicated that he had been in touch with his wider circle of family members, making them aware of the excitement in France, and that he wasn't totally adverse to Leopold's withdrawal from the candidature, all things considered. 
Notwithstanding Wilhelm's flip-flopping, the Prussian king then admitted to Benedetti his knowledge and that of the Prussian government's knowledge of the candidature and the expected effects it would have in France. Over the following days, Benedetti continued to pressure Wilhelm, and Wilhelm responded that he expected to hear word from Leopold soon. However, Leopold, the Spanish candidate, was at this point hiking in the Alps, and therefore he was out of reach. Leopold's father then, Karl Anton, was soon to find himself bombarded in Leopold's place by various petitions to renounce Leopold's acceptance, including those implied in messages from Wilhelm that he would not oppose such a withdrawal, and that Leopold nor his father would be castigated for doing so by the Prussian government. By the 12th of July, the pressure had finally swayed Karl Anton, and he telegraphed the withdrawal of his son's candidature. In spite of the tumultuous proceedings then, on the surface it appeared as though France, and by extension Napoleon III, had acquired diplomatic satisfaction. Through this, one could deduce that surely there would be no need for war. The French government quickly learned of this victory when it intercepted a dispatch from Karl Anton to the Spanish ambassador in Paris. As one historian observed, In Gramont's eyes and those of his supporters, the question of the candidature itself had thus become second to the more vital point of obtaining satisfaction from Prussia. In Gramont's mind, affairs in France were at such a level that satisfaction could not be achieved through diplomacy alone, unless the diplomatic satisfaction itself was far more total. With this goal in mind, Gramont sent word that evening to Benedetti to... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. To demand, Wilhelm also gave his personal assurance as the king of Prussia that Leopold would never in the future stand for the Spanish throne again. Obeying his master back in Paris, the following morning a somewhat stressed Benedetti approached Wilhelm I while the latter was out for a stroll. The Prussian king, though he may have been taken aback a little bit to see Benedetti again, politely declined what Benedetti put to him, making use of his most conciliatory language while he did so, and that aspect of the conciliatory language will become important later on. 
Despite the polite language, though, Benedetti began to become somewhat agitated, and as Wilhelm noted that their conversation was beginning to draw onlookers, he tipped his hat to Benedetti and withdrew. Throughout the day, Benedetti continued to seek an audience with Wilhelm to further press the issue, but this was refused by Wilhelm's staff, though the king did engage in other conciliatory gestures. Again, remember how conciliatory Wilhelm is being here, because that will become important later on. In an effort to defuse the tensions that Benedetti seemed to have in his mind, Wilhelm sent a copy of Carl Anton's letter to Benedetti's hotel, but when this proved insufficient for the French ambassador, Wilhelm instructed him to tell his government in Paris that Napoleon III had his personal assurance as the King of Prussia that Leopold would not stand for the Spanish throne here. Again, it seemed, French satisfaction had been achieved. Surely Napoleon III and his ministers couldn't argue that their country's national honour demanded war when the king of their rivals stated his willingness to comply. Surely this signified that French power was supreme, that it was respected and that it wasn't in doubt. Indeed, given the council's decision in France, this crisis should have been over. The French side had not only achieved its goal of terminating Leopold's candidature, it had also succeeded in wringing an official approval thereof from the Prussian king. If the story had ended there, not only would Bismarck's schemes come to naught, they would have resulted in a diplomatic defeat for a Prussia that had stood down in the face of French pressures. That the story did not end there has everything to do with the intervention of Bismarck at this critical juncture. Making the journey to Bad Ems, where Wilhelm remained in his estates, Bismarck learned on the journey there on the 12th of July that Leopold had in fact withdrawn his candidature to the Spanish throne. Since a large reason for his travelling there had been to persuade Wilhelm to break off relations with French ambassador Benedetti, this news seemed to signal defeat for him and his plans. The following night, he met, in a dark mood with his peers, determined to implement some damage control on what had occurred, and perhaps find a way to elicit a condemnation of French behaviour. Surrounded as he was by arguably his closest allies, Helmut von Malka and Albrecht von Roon, the Prussian chief of staff and secretary for war respectively, Bismarck conversed with them about the recent diplomatic defeat and how to come back from it, when a telegraph arrived from Bad Ems describing the morning's encounter in the park between Wilhelm I and Benedetti. Bismarck noted the conciliatory language that Wilhelm had used throughout the conversation and then afterwards to ease the French concerns, as well as those of Benedetti. And importantly, he also noted that the telegram contained a rider which authorised its publication, so he could pretty much do what he wanted with it, as it was good to go. After asking his guests as to the state of the military should war come with France, and then receiving an encouraging answer from those in the room that were best disposed to know after all, Bismarck set to creating in this telegram the casus belli which he needed to hand to France. By removing key lines, what was a relatively harmless description of the meeting between the Prussian monarch and French ambassador was morphed into a tale designed to raise the ire of both French and German readers. For example, the original draft had stated that the German king had chosen not to receive Count Benedetti again, but to let him know through an aide-de-camp that His Majesty had now received from the prince confirmation of the news which Benedetti had already had from Paris, and therefore had nothing more to say to the ambassador. A straightforward and inoffensive summary all in all, you might agree. Yet, under Bismarck's pen, it became... 
His Majesty thereupon refused to receive the French ambassador any more, and instructed the aide-de-camp on duty to say that His Majesty had nothing further to communicate to the ambassador. Though this might sound like a very small change, the historian William Carr noted on the transformed document that would become known as the Ems Dispatch, saying, All references to the King's conciliatory gestures had been excluded. The encounter had been transformed into a brusque confrontation between an ambassador who had overstepped the bounds of propriety with his important demands and a highly incensed monarch who had rightly refused further dealings with him. Yet it was Maltke who put it best when he remarked that It sounded before like a parlay, now it is like a flourish in answer to a challenge. And indeed a challenge is precisely what the Ems Dispatch came to represent. Demonstrating a profound and deep understanding of the French psyche, Bismarck knew that by handing them such a challenge, the French would be compelled to answer it, and he suspected that affairs had by now reached such a point that diplomacy in Paris, and to Napoleon III as well as his ministers, would no longer suffice. As Bismarck himself put it, the telegram would have the effect of a red flag upon the Gallic bull. It is important that we should be the party attacked, and this Gallic overweening and touchiness will make us that. Bismarck then set to work ensuring that the dispatch would be free to peruse by publishing it within his favourite newspaper, for all of Germany and, of course, for France, to see. It has to be stated that by this point, the events of July had ensured that French officials and French public opinion was already on edge, but Bismarck's handiwork massively upped the ante. Prime Minister Olivier tells us that as he was in the throes of, incidentally, drafting a pacifying message to the French legislature, Grammont confronted him. My dear fellow, Olivier later quoted Grammont as saying, you see before you a man who has just been slapped in the face. Grammont gave the impression of a man who had been immensely shocked and deeply insulted, and it didn't take long before Olivier himself was also overwhelmed by the same passions. A meeting of the Imperial Council was called, while the mob surged restlessly outside the chamber, having themselves by now read and been made aware of the dispatch. Somehow the assembled officials managed to maintain some calm, deciding to call for a congress of powers that would settle the crisis, restore French prestige and avoid war, but such moderation just couldn't last in the prevailing atmosphere. Olivier, upon returning home, was confronted by the opposition of friends and family. Napoleon III faced the wrath of his empress, and began to deeply feel the pressure on a personal level. News of the Ems telegram had also spread throughout Paris. A howling mob surged through the boulevards, shouting, To Berlin! Down with Prussia! And singing the forbidden Marseillaise, as one historian noted. Both Olivier and Napoleon subsequently changed their minds on the feasibility of a European Congress, given popular opinion, so a different kind of meeting was called. By the following morning the choice had been made for war, and the call for war credits was enthusiastically given in the great wave of emotion washing over the French legislative body. The popular response was one of great enthusiasm. The certainty of war was greeted with a roar of approval by the Paris crowd. The city was in a state of delirium, said one historian. At this point the crowds even sought to storm the Prussian embassy. The outburst of national feeling had become uncontrollable, as one witness to the crowds in Paris observed. The really fine thing is that there are no longer any party distinctions in Paris. In the Place de la Concorde, there are more than 3,000 people who danced around the column saying, Vive l'Empereur! 
Anyone who mentioned caution, noted the historian Theo Aronson, was simply shouted down. It was above all, guys, Bismarck's provocation that transformed a French diplomatic success into an outrage requiring satisfaction. What began as an issue of Leopold's candidature was converted into something different altogether. As one historian said, A mere withdrawal of the candidature was not enough. Prussia, who had tried to humiliate France, must herself be humiliated. After Bismarck's timely intervention, it was no longer of consequence that the issue itself was settled. French attention in the public, governmental and imperial sphere became fixated upon immediate satisfaction and no other option but the blind rush to war became possible. Blinded by rage and passions in their drive to achieve satisfaction, the French side was overly confident in the face of the risks that war would bring. In a turn of phrase that would haunt him later, Olivier famously proclaimed that the declaration of war was made with light hearts. In the original take for the Franco-Prussian War episode five years ago, I misunderstood the true reason why Olivier used such words. The incredible truth is that he spoke in this way because he believed with supreme confidence that victory would be with France, and thus the decisions which led to war need not overly tax its officials. In other words, she could proceed with a light heart and light conscience because the ensuing war would be more than worth it. As Aronson observes... On July 18th, the day of the formal declaration of war, the senators and deputies were all aglow with optimism. When war came, the French government was prepared neither militarily nor diplomatically. They were isolated on the continent and across the world. They were without allies and they faced a foe that had meticulously calculated its plan of attack. An attack which they helped fulfil through their desperation for immediate satisfaction, quest for national honour, and the vulnerability to manipulation by Bismarck which resulted. The French would have had good reasons to maintain a strong faith in their martial prowess and history of military traditions. However, considering what was at stake, the willingness of the French emperor and state to proceed alone is still remarkable. Consumed by passions, blinded by calls for revenge and bolstered by positive feelings of military superiority, the Franco-Prussian War would erupt amidst scenes strikingly out of odds with the reality of the situation. It was a situation which sucked in emperor, statesman and citizen alike, and it was a situation almost singularly crafted and manipulated into being by Otto von Bismarck. If we come back to the issue which opened our coverage of the outbreak of the war, that of anger and how it compels one to do rash and reactionary things, it's worth asking to what extent every actor that professed outrage actually felt such anger deep down and if anger at what had been communicated in the Ems dispatch was the true reason for war. In short, what I'm getting at is the question of whether the French officials like Gourmand and Olivier chose war because the conflict would be in their interest, the strategic interest of France, or whether war was launched for the emotional reasons that we've encountered. Coming to a concise conclusion on this question either way is perhaps the most difficult issue, because we don't have direct access to the thoughts and feelings of the ministers of France at the time, and realistically the true motives for war were probably a mixture of the two concerns of prestige slash anger slash confidence. If one examines the expressions of outrage at the elite level, with Gourmand and Olivier being the most prominent examples, it is possible to discern a level of genuine anger which supports the theory that the Franco-Prussian War was launched by France for mostly emotional reasons. 
A strong argument can be made that both French statesmen, on the basis of their private interactions with one another, after the receipt of the infamous telegram, for instance, did experience sincere personal outrage. Interestingly for us, though, they also chose to declare their outrage more publicly, and such open display suggests that even if they didn't initially feel outrage, they very likely perceived strong social and normative expectations that they should feel outraged. Or at least they felt important political incentives to appear outraged, or perhaps they felt both. This ties into what we mentioned earlier about the importance of getting the population on side, and how such domestic wrangling was crucial in order to launch a popular war, which as we know the Franco-Prussian War initially was in France. So we've seen how French statesmen debated in the chamber about going to a congress to achieve satisfaction, but circumstances had so deteriorated, along with perhaps the patience of the French people, that war seemed the most logical, honourable and sensible result. This says as much about Napoleon III's regime as it does about Bismarck's wiles. We know that the Chancellor was able to manipulate the French statesman and citizen by providing him with so profound an insult that only the most severe response could possibly assuage the national anger that resulted, and of course achieve satisfaction. Bismarck would never have been able to do this had he not been fully able to grasp the nature of French politics at the time, the disappointments of the French people or the pressures that their statesmen felt as a result. With his background homework thus complete, Bismarck had literally the perfect circumstances for his war. The French people were bombastically positioning themselves to invade Germany, and their government displayed such naked aggression that it seemed only rational for Prussian and German citizens alike to join forces against such a rapacious enemy. Bismarck's genius is found not merely in his understanding of the French psyche, or of his appreciation for how the French governmental system required grand displays of power for the sake of national satisfaction. Those aspects are of course vital, but in my view the Chancellor's true masterstroke was that he was perceptive enough to know precisely when the right time would be to release the Ems dispatch. That he knew it would so insult French prestige and pride at just the time when the French felt they could least afford such insults, this is what makes his diplomatic policy so remarkable. His explicit aim had been to goad France into war, and to manipulate his adversary to achieve a stunning victory and unification of the German people under Berlin. In this, of course, he was utterly successful. It was a victory on a scale scarcely imaginable when Bismarck assumed office in 1862, but by the time of his resignation in 1890, it was clear that he had not been one to adhere either to contemporary expectations or the limitations of his office. He was a singularly pivotal character, whose mark on German, European and world history seems impossible in its entirety to fathom. Soon enough though, as per the plans of the Patreon $1,000 a month goal, which guarantees the release of some form of a Bismarckian series, be it in a brand new podcast or ambitious mini-series, I hope to give it a try. So thanks for joining me in this two-part deep-dive examination into the circumstances which brought Napoleon III and Bismarck to war, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of When Diplomacy Fails Thinks, whenever in this remastered project that may be, and I hope you'll stick around, of course, for the rest of the remastered project, because When Diplomacy Fails is running wild. My name is Zach, and I'll be seeing you all very soon.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 